Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. Matthew chapter 4, if you have a Bible and you want to find a good starting point, uh, Matthew chapter 4 would be a good place to begin. Next week, if just in case I forget to say, next week, um, Lord willing, we'll be looking at Peter, the apostle, the disciple. Um, so he'll be the subject of next week. But as we have been doing, each and every single week, we've been looking at different characters in the Bible, um, both male and female, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, both the good and the bad. <coughs> so looking at different characters. And just looking at the examples that they have and, and things that we can learn about their lives and things that we can apply from their lives to our lives today. So with all three of these, or all these characters we've looked at so far, we always ask the three questions. Who were they? Biographical information, just fact, fact, factual information on a driver's license. We ask who or why do we know them as far as why are they significant? Why do we know them in the Bible? Why do they, why do they stick out out of all the thousands of names in the Bible? Why do we pick this one? And then the third question is, is what lessons do they have to teach us? So tonight we're going to be looking at John. Um, John the Apostle, John the Disciple, um, and we're going to be looking at him. Um, he's talked about in Matthew, he's talked about in Mark, he's talked about in Luke, talked about in John, talked about in the book of Acts and talked about elsewhere in the New Testament. So when we think about the person or the character of John the Apostle, ask these three questions, starting off the first question, well, who was he? What do we know about John the Apostle biographically? He was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. How do we know that? Because Jesus called him out of the his father's Okay. So, and do you know where you get that from? Matthew 4? Okay. <laughs> so, so Matthew 4, if you, if you look there at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21, you'll see where Jesus comes and He calls both. Um, he calls John. He's in the boat with his father Zebedee. And they are in the boat because they are mending the nets. And they're mending the nets because they're fishermen by trade. Um, any idea? Probably maybe a, a spitball of maybe where they fished at. See a galley, right? That'd be a really good assumption considering that's really the only body of water that's there in that area. So they're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, what else do we know about him? Brother James. Brother James, all right. Um, Zebedee is his father. Zebedee, Zebedee. Zebedee. You can say it however you want to say it. I don't know the right way to do it. So, Zeb. So, okay, so his dad's name is Zeb. He's got a brother named James. Um, And you'll see elsewhere, um, sometimes Bible commentators will talk about him being James the older or James the bigger because there's another disciple also by the name of James that they would call him James the lesser. Um, So sometimes you'll see that in commentaries. It's, it's not a it's not an explicit scriptural reference. So, um, okay, so his father's Zebedee. He's got a brother named James. Fisherman by trade. Long, on the Sea of Galilee. What else do we know? 
John? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, ma'am. The same John. Yes, ma'am. Do what? He was a follower of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. What else do we know about him? Do we know his mama's name? Possible. <laughs> okay. Possible. What do you mean, Mr. Charles? Tell enlighten us on what do you mean? Okay. Matthew twenty seven fifty six. Okay. Talks about another woman, the third woman, who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Will you read? Will you read that for us? Yeah. So Matthew twenty-seven and verse fifty-six. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this is contextually, this is where we at in the story of Jesus. This is the the uh, resurrection. Okay. The time of resurrection. Okay. It says uh, among them were Mary Magdalene. Mother of the Mary of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay. And then you go over to Mark 16.1. Uh-huh. I'm interested to see how you pronounce your name. Because <laughs> I know how I pronounce your name. I don't say that. I know how I pronounce it. Anyway. Uh, so Mark 16.1. 16.1. Uh-huh. And again, this is the resurrection. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome... Uh, bought spices and so that they might come and anoint him. Yeah. So, so I, I was always taught in Sinai school that was salami, and it's not, <laughs> and it's not, it's not written the same way. So don't like he doesn't know how to, he doesn't know how to spell salami. I know how to spell. I think maybe salami. I know it's spelled differently, but that's what I, that was always what I was taught. Salome was his. Mother. Yes. So there's so there is that possibility. He didn't name her. Only Mark did, but there's. The possible, that's what they believe. Yeah, so it, it tells us in Matthew, the ladies that were there, talks about the mother of Zebedee. Mark is the only place, like you said, that it references Salome as being the woman that's there. And if you match it up, you uh, reconcile it, then you could infer, you could imply, it's highly probable and highly likely that his, their mother was named Salome. Um, even though it doesn't explicitly tell us that, so I don't want you to leave here and say, oh, well, Charles or Spence, you know, they said that was that was his mom's name. We're just saying that there's correlations that are there that uh, may be something that might be of interest. Or you may find someone that says, looks at you very dogmatically and says, oh, well, their mother's was Salome, and you're like, how do you know that? Well, the Bible says it. Ah! <laughs> You know, kind of like saying that Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. Ah, you know, we just we can always we can always be on guard. Okay, so there's that possibility that his mother's name was Salome. Family business was in fishing. What else do we know about John? Did he have any nicknames? John Sons of Thunder. Okay, do you remember where we get that from? The Bible. The Bible. Okay. All right. I, yeah, I should. I should. Okay. So, if you find your way to Mark, Mark chapter three is where you find the reference to the nickname that was given to both John and his brother. They were given the nickname as Sons of Thunder. 
They were given the nickname um, by Jesus because of their attitudes. They had a very much, these people aren't following us. Let's call down fire and brimstone upon them and let's rock them, sock them. Let's go get them. And Jesus called them. And you see this there in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17. It tells us that James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names... And I don't know how it says in your Bible. Mine says that is sons of of thunders. But your Bible probably has a word, right? How do you pronounce that? Boanagers. Boanagers? Boanagies. Boanagies. Okay. Banjo? (laughs) Anybody else got another guess? What do you think, Miss Donna? You you know. I think he's right. Boanagies? Well, I don't think it's G's. Well, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Banjo. Banjo. Okay. So he gave them the name Banjo, which translated means sons of thunder, talking about their personalities and talking about their their, uh, peculiarities and talking about their attitude. Yeah. So you kind of get an idea of how they were in relation to Jesus. Anything else we know about him biographically? So we got the father, we got the possible mother, got a brother. Was he married? Unknown. Unknown. It doesn't say he was, and it doesn't say he wasn't. So we really don't know whether he was or he wasn't. Have any children? Don't have any record of any children. Any other siblings besides James? We don't have any record of that either. I'm not saying that there weren't. I'm just saying that we don't have any record. And so I want to be really careful about not saying, well, he did, he was not married because the Bible doesn't say he was not married. Right? All right. So, kind of give us some biographical information. So let's ask the next question. Why do we know about James the apostle? Why do we know about James the disciple? Why do we know? Why would he be somebody that we would be paying attention to? And you may say, well, Spence, he was one of the twelve disciples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how many of us in this room can name all twelve? So my point is, it's not just because he's a disciple, which makes him important. Because there was eleven other guys that were part of the disciples, but Primarily, we remember just a handful of them, right? We remember Judas, because <laughs> what he did, all right? And then there's another, another few of them. So, so why do we know about John the Apostle, John the Disciple? Why do we know about him? He was there at the Transfiguration. Okay, why? Why was he at the Transfiguration? Any ideas? No. Okay. So, one of the things you'll pick up on, so um, they call it the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, is, is what the title of the book is, but there are... Treasury Scripture knowledge, and there's also what they call a harmony of the Gospels. And so what Bible scholars have done, and they've gone to the four Gospels, and they have tried to reconcile them chronologically. So sometimes, maybe not you all, but I, sometimes I'll start reading in Matthew, and then I'll go over to Mark, and I don't know whether where I'm at in the story. Does that make sense? Because they're not always saying, and then they don't give me dates and times of when all this stuff happens. So there's Bible scholars that have then taken all four of the Gospels, and constructed the harmony of the Gospels to kind of give you a flow. And so they'll go pretty much in a chronological way, January, February, March, April, May, through the life of Jesus, and then give you all the Scripture references they think fit to those passages. So you can kind of read through there in a timeline-type fashion, 
if you will. So when you do that and you start reading through there, one of the things that stick out to you is that Jesus had how many disciples? Twelve. Twelve. Within those twelve, if you start looking at how they are being used, there are at least three, if not four different groups of disciples. Alright? So within you had you had these four different or three different groups of disciples, and within those three different groups, you had different Names, different purposes, they had different functions. And so some some Bible scholars will talk about Jesus having, um, he had the 12 disciples, but he had an inner circle, if you will. And the reason why they say this is, is because you get to Mark chapter 9 and verse 2 in the transfiguration. Who is there at the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. Alright? You get to uh, Mark chapter 5 and verse 37. And Jesus is raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Peter, James, and John are the three that are sitting there. You get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they've left the upper room. And now they've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night that Judas is now bringing the soldiers to betray Jesus. And it says the disciples stopped. And Jesus took... How many disciples with him further? Three. Peter, James, and John. So we infer, and I want to say infer because it does. Jesus doesn't give us an explanation and say, hey, these are my three besties. I mean, he, he doesn't come in and give us that language, but we see the frequency that they were there. So one of the reasons why we know about John is because... When all the really, really, really cool stuff happened, he was there. He was part of that inner crowd. Some people have said Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So you'll see some Bible commentators that will talk about Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And that would give you four. And so they would say there were three sets of four. Some commentators will divide it up in four sets of three. So you have Peter, James, and John in one set. And then you have Philip and Andrew and I think Bartholomew in a second set. I'd have to go back. But but for sure you've got Peter, James, and John are always with Jesus. There will be other times that other disciples will be scattered doing other things and on other missions, but these three are always with Jesus. And so it's kind of like this was the inner circle. So one of the reasons why we know so much about John is because all throughout the Gospels, when all these things were happening and it's mentioning who all was there, they're always mentioning Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Mount of Transfiguration. There's only three disciples up there with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. I mean, there's just times when this happened. And it kind of gives us this picture that John was part of that inner circle of disciples. And he was there. Which is one of the reasons why we know about him. So yeah, you're right on there, Mr. Harold. I mean, he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. There was only six people. And I don't even know if you call them people. I mean, there was only six characters at the Mount of Transfiguration. God, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Elijah, and then Peter, James, and John. I mean, so that's a pretty select group, right? I mean, that's... Weren't they kind of the first three selected by him also? They were. And that's why some people put in Andrew, because Andrew is Peter's brother. And so you get to the account in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus goes and he calls Peter and Andrew first, and then come James and John. When you get to the Gospel of John, you'll see where he goes and he calls Andrew first. Andrew goes and finds Peter, and then 
Some Bible commentators say that later on in the Gospel of John, I think this would be John chapter 1 or chapter 2, where Jesus walks by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, hey, that's the Messiah. Two of John the Baptist's disciples then follow Jesus. And there are some people that think that that was James and John that then followed Jesus. And so they, they would then say, Andrew was really the first guy that was called, then Peter, and then James and John. Yeah, I've heard that Andrew was supposed to be one of John the Baptist's disciples. And he was the one who went to Jesus because John told him to. Sure. And then... And there's all kinds of stuff that you can find that I think is interesting and fascinating and something that kind of think, well, that would be a cool way to go about it. At the end of the day, um, be careful about being too firm about saying, well, this is what it does if it doesn't say it, right? So we know that he was part of the inner circle. What would be another reason? What would be something else that would be a reason why we would know about John the Apostle? He wrote five books, and what would you say? Early founder of the book. All right, so Peter, you said he wrote five books. Which five? John, first, second, third John, Revelation. That's right. Okay, so uh, beyond Paul, who Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, who is the next most significant contributor to the New Testament? John. John. Right. So Peter wrote how many? Books in the Bible? Two. Alright. John wrote five. Paul wrote more than that because all the epistles that you have there. So yeah, he wrote he wrote five books in the New Testament. He was one of the founders of the early church because he was there. Right? What else do we know about him? I mean, like, what, what would be another reason why we might know about who he is? His gospel is known to be 80 to 90% unique compared to the other. It is. And so you will find where theories... Theories are out there that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the same source material. When they when they penned their gospels, they're using the same resource. That is why you see such similarity in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they were all using the same research source where John is marked markedly different. And they say that, you know, it's not it's not the same as the other three. There's a lot of similarities in the other three, but John is very different and writes from a very unique perspective as opposed to the other three. Have yeah. you found some things that he doesn't have in the gospel? Yes. There yes. Three days, so. Yes. Quite a list, actually. Yes. It's, it's interesting. What else do we know? Why else would we know about him? Is this the John that's called the John that Jesus loved? Yes. Yes. And so it talks about that in the Gospel of John. So John will talk about himself like in the third person. So like you get towards the end of the book of John and you get the scene where um, the disciples have gone fishing and Jesus shows up on the bank. I think this is John 20 or John 21. And... Now the scene is Jesus and Peter and John, and it talks about the disciple that Jesus loved. 
You get the same kind of language in the upper room. This would be John 15 through 17, where um, Jesus is saying, one of y'all is going to betray me. Peter's on one side, John's on the other side, and it talks about, you know, Peter looked at the one that Jesus loved and said, hey, ask him who it is. So, yes, he, it, this is the same person. We don't see that in the other three Gospels where they refer to John as the one that Jesus loved. We only see it in the Gospel of John, and so some people say, well, that's kind of conceited to write about yourself as being the one that Jesus loved. But then other people think that he was writing about that not to try to bring attention to himself as saying John, John, John of trying to refer to himself not anonymously, but rather not trying to platform his name. So, yes, that's right. Is he the only disciple that an angel came to? Don't no. Well, no, no. Angels there when Jesus rose. There was angels there, but Peter. So in the book of Acts, Acts twelve, Peter gets put in prison, and he is there in prison. And y'all remember this story? So he's there in prison and gonna get killed the next day. And he's asleep, and the angel shows up because the whole church is praying for him. The angel shows up and kicks him and wakes him up and says, get up and get dressed. And then he leads him out, right? Leads him out, and uh, he gets outside the prison, and the doors are just open, and Peter doesn't understand what's going on. They get out of the prison, and finally comes to his senses, and the angel disappears. And remember, Peter goes into the house where everybody's gathered to pray. He's knocking on the door, and the servant girl, Rhoda, comes up and says, Peter's here. And everybody in the house said, there's no way. He's in prison. We're praying for him to get out and there's no way that he could be here. So um, so I mean, the angel comes to Peter there. So so Peter, John and the, who are the three? Peter, James and John. Okay. Is yes. There any record of James and an angel? I don't have any record of James and an angel um, but do, you, do we know what happened to James? Yeah. Killed. He was killed. Where, where's that at? Do you remember? It's in Acts. It is in Acts. You're thinking of Acts 12, aren't you? Yeah. Acts 12, okay? So this is James, the brother of John. Um, so um, when you think about, well, what, 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 what would be another reason why we know about John? Well, it's because of one of the things that happened to his brother. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, is said about that time Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleads the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so that is the preceding passage to then when Peter is locked up thinking he's going to die the next day, but he's chilled out and he's asleep and the angel shows up. So um, one, of the, one of the other reasons why we know about um, John is because his brother ends up being killed, um, martyred for the faith um, right there. Now he's not the first Martyr recorded in Scripture as far as after Jesus' ascension. Who was the first martyr after Jesus' ascension? John the Baptist? No. No, he, he was killed during the ministry. So who would be the first one? This, this is like extra points. Extra Stephen. That's right. So Stephen was the first martyr post-ascension. Alright? So, but then James was uh, closely on the hills. What would be anything else that you can think of what, why we'd know about John? Jesus gave his mother to him on the cross. That's right. That's right. So he was given the responsibility and the duty to care for 
Mary, believed to be a widow at this point, and uh, gave that responsibility. That's right. Did you say something, Ms. Donovan? Um, wasn't he the only one who did not become a martyr? He died of old age on Island Yes. So, we don't have it... If you say, give me the chapter and verse, Spence, <laughs> we do not have it recorded in Scripture, the fate of all the rest of the disciples. We go to extra-biblical sources. So Josephus is a Jewish historian writing around the same time. And you can go back and read some of his writings that will help fill in the gap of what happened to the disciples. Um, there is some Eusebius, and then there's a couple other writers during that period that we still have their writings to be able to go back and fill in the historical account of what happened and what took place. And so, yes, Miss Donna, based upon the best of our understanding. And it's not just going from the Bible. It is the Bible and other sources that we have available. We're able to piece together that John, you had Judas that committed suicide. And then you've got um, Paul is said to have been killed around 64 AD, 65 AD. He was beheaded in Rome. And then Peter was crucified upside down. Um, Philip and Andrew supposedly went to India. I mean, so there's accounts, extra-biblical accounts about what happened. But yes, John is the only one that we believe died of natural causes. But he was in exile. He was in exile. That's right. But he was the only one that died of natural causes. So this is where we have to go to some of this other extra-biblical historical writings. Is shows us that John, later on in life, began to pastor the church in Ephesus. And as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus, he's saying Christian things, and a secular culture didn't appreciate his Christian things. And so the, uh, government, the, the governmental ruler at that time said... You're out. So cast him out of the city of Ephesus, exiled him from Ephesus to the island of Patmos. Now, if you look on a map and you have what is modern day Greece, modern day Greece on the western side has a whole bunch of dots of little small islands. And so he was actually exiled to the island of Patmos. Every time I think about this, I think about the old Steve McQueen movie called Papillon. Because in the old Steve McQueen movie in Papillon, you know, they're down there in that penal colony, French Guiana I think is where it was, Papua New Guinea somewhere down there, and then towards the end, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman, they're like exiled on this island, just go out there and die, and in the very end of the movie, Papillon is trying to escape from that island on the coconut the raft of coconuts, so I, that's what I think of, just being exiled just <laughs> dropped off on an island and said, here, you're not going to bother anybody here Get out of our hair. And he's out there. Some people think uh, the most common dating has Revelation written around 94 to 95 A.D. If that is accurate, then at the writing of the Revelation, when John is exiled in Patmos, that would put him somewhere 85 to 90 years old. That he is there on the island of Patmos um, receiving the revelation. Revelation on that island. That, yes, sir. Well, he doesn't say that. He, he just says in chapter 1, we're going to look at that in a minute, but in chapter 1 he says, I was exiled on the island of Patmos. Jesus showed up said, write this down. So we just, we're, I think we're on safe ground to assume that he wrote it when he was on the island of Patmos. Yes, sir. So how did the writing get off the island? I don't know. 
I'm assuming he wasn't the only one on the island. I, I, I don't know, Josh. And, you know, there's other writings that we have, like the prison epistles that we have from Paul, that allegedly Paul was in prison writing the letter. And then you think, well, then how did it get out? How did it get out of the prison? How did it get sent? There's some letters that will say that this letter was carried by such and such, like Paul's letter to Colossae was carried by Epaphras. And so you say, well, how did Paul get it from the prison cell into the hands of Epaphras, and then Epaphras gets it to Colossae. Um, we don't have anything that I can show you from Scripture that says this was the chain of custody. But we have it, and it's highly reliable, and so somehow it got, uh, it got off there. So, Any other ideas about why we may, or maybe other things that stick out to you that would be a, a reason why we know about John? Okay, so Jesus ascends, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 21, Luke 24. The book of Acts picks up. You have the early church that is sitting there. Who are, the one, so who are two of the main figures that we see in the early book, in the early pages of Acts? And I'm thinking like Acts 3, Acts 4. Any names stick out to you? Peter. Peter and John. That's right. Peter and John. Now you say, well, Spence, where did you get that from? (laughs) Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. What does it say? It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of, or at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And that's where you have the lame man that that they end up healing. And then later on, um, Peter starts to preach. This is Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 4 comes around. They get arrested. This is chapter 4 and verse 3. It says they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So they get arrested and then this is now in Acts chapter 4. They get brought in in front of the religious leaders and the religious leaders are going, hey, we told you not to do this. What are you doing? We already already threatened you and we already said don't do this anymore. Chapter 4 verse 12 and they answer. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were perceived, or they, Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. That verse always makes me chuckle. They were looking at these guys and said, these are common uneducated men. And now they say, I want to be that. I want to be where somebody just looks and maybe maybe you're like, oh, don't worry, Spence, you got it. You got, you got that down. I don't know, but I, you know, I just think, you know, sometimes, sometimes you have people walking around, you know, and they, and they try to put on airs and then they try to, and then they try to look like somebody that are not. And, and from time to time, I, I go up to Kansas City to the school that I'm, in, I'm enrolled in up there. You know, you get up there and you get guys coming in, you know, and they purposely are carrying a set number of books because the title or the author that, you know, oh, look, they're, they're super spiritual because of the stuff they're reading or they sit down and, and the particular kind of Bible they have or the particular kind of dress that they will have or even, I mean, even now with the, the facial hair, I mean, it's just they are trying to put on a persona of look who I am. And I think to myself, 
it still stinks when you leave the bathroom. I don't know why we got to go around acting like we're somebody special. I mean, it's just like at the end of the day, we are all sinners saved by grace. And why in the world do we need to try to put on airs? And so it just always makes me chuckle when you get to chapter 4 and verse 13. Peter and John are looking at religious leaders and going, you know, we don't care what you say. We know what we believe and we know what we saw and we know what we've been told and that's what we're going to do. And the religious leaders are looking at them and going, hmm, common uneducated men. But, verse 13, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. So it gives you this idea that by looking at them said, them are just country folk uneducated country folk but by looking at it they knew they had been with Jesus what what a mark for you and I to try to strive to be that when people look at us they don't see our education they don't see our monetary value they don't see the name tag on the clothes that we're wearing when they look at us what they see in us is that we have been with Jesus I think what a phenomenal Mark to be striving for that that is what I want to be known for. I don't want to be known by the clothes that I wear or the company I keep. I would like for people to be able to just look at me and recognize that I have been with Jesus. And so when I think about, well, why do I know about John, the apostle in the Bible? Because he was the kind of guy that you didn't know him because of his education or lack of education. You didn't know him because of how good of a speaker he was. You knew about him because he had been with Jesus. I think that is really, really cool. What other? Anything else that you might think of about why do we know about John the Apostle? Okay? So what lessons? What are some lessons that you think of that give us give us something that we can take away? So we walk out of here and we're like, okay, I may have more facts and information in my head. Well, and that's that has its place. But really, we come to these characters to ask ourselves, what is it that we can then look at their lives and then use as a means of application to our lives? Any lessons that stick out to you? If you know, if you don't, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give you some. But okay. Obey God. Okay. Obey God. That's good. That's good. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. All right. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. That's right. So one of the ones that stick out to me is. The purpose. We talked about this last week about knowing knowing the mission that God has you on. But in John chapter twenty, um, Peter is. I mean, Peter's the one that. I mean, not Peter. John is the one that wrote the Gospel of John. So at the towards the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter twenty, he gives us an explanation why he wrote the Gospel of John, and he says, "This is why I did it." And in John chapter twenty, and in verse thirty. John writes, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is saying the whole reason why I wrote this gospel is not for you to know about me or not for you to know about the highlights of what Jesus did. I didn't write this gospel so that you could know about how He fed 5,000 people or how He walked on water or how He pulled Peter out of the water when he was sinking. I, I, I didn't write this so you could hear what He did with the demons or how the demons responded to Him. I wrote this gospel so that you may believe. John was very clear he had a purpose. His purpose was to communicate to people who Jesus was so that they might believe. There is application all through that for me. Why has Jesus revealed Himself to me? And why has Jesus then commanded me to go and tell other people about Him? Not for the transference of information, but so that others might believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the, that's the goal. That's why we practice evangelism. Telling other people about Jesus is not just so we can check a box, not just so we can feel better ourselves, but we do that so that other people might believe. There's, a, there's an intentionality in what we're doing. There's a purpose in what we're doing so that people might believe. And there's a purpose that you see given there that I think um, is a purpose that is still relevant to all of us. Why have we been given the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why have, been, why have we been given a Bible in the language that we can read and understand? So that we can tell other people. Just so that we can tell other people and say, Jesus loves you, have a nice day. No, so we can tell other people so that they might believe. So, I still have room to go if all I do is walk up and say, Hey, Peter, Jesus loves you. That's true and that's good. But I have more that I can give him to explain to him why Jesus loves him and how Jesus has shown that love for him and what that love means for him so that he might have an opportunity to believe. Does that make sense? There's just a purpose that is there. Another one... Acts 4. So if you turn to the right there from John chapter 20 and you get to Acts chapter 4, we looked at verses 13 just a second ago. But as the story goes on that I, that I, that I didn't finish a few moments ago, the story goes on, they, they're looking at him, they're like, you know what, they're, they're dumb country hicks up from the Sea of Galilee, but, you know, they've been with Jesus. So then, um, verse 15, it says, but when they, they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? They really didn't know what they were supposed to do. So then you get down to verse 18. So they called them, called them back in the room, charged them not to speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. Now, what's significant about this? The same people that are going, you better not talk about Jesus. These are the same characters that had crucified Jesus days before that. So they had the power, they had the playbook, they had the experience to know how to bring up false charges and have a person murdered. And they knew how to do this. And so these same guys are looking at Peter and John saying, Hush, be quiet. Verse 
verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's a lesson of boldness there. Courage. Courage. Peter and John look at him and go, you know what? You answer to God for what you're doing. But we are going to be faithful regardless of what it costs us. Now you may say, oh yeah, yeah, that's me too. Remember, John was sitting there as Christ died. He saw the result. He was even in there in the garden whenever the beating was was just beginning and the wee hours preceding that. Um, he wasn't there for all of the torture and all of the mutilation and all of the, 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 the uh, rough treatment. But when you're John and you're sitting there at the foot of the cross. Now, I know a lot of times in the movies, I mean, the, the cross is 10 feet up in the air, 20 feet in the air. That's probably not accurate. It, it, probably not accurate because trees weren't that plentiful. Tall trees weren't that plentiful. And, and lumber was still expensive even back then. And so it was probably that there was just enough space to keep his feet from touching the ground. So it's very likely, I don't have a picture of it, it's very likely that when they're looking at the cross, the feet of Jesus is maybe a foot up off the ground, and so you're much more eye level than looking up. Why does that matter? Because you're watching the entire crucifixion. You're watching the nails go in. You're watching your Messiah be raised up. You're watching the the, uh, board fall down in the dirt. And you're watching Jesus there in agony. And you're seeing every single place where they struck Him. Every single place that the the, uh, cords tore the skin. Every single place that the blood is coming from the brow with the crown of thorns. Every single place where the nails are in. You see this in a very graphic way. So then you fast forward a couple of months later and these same religious leaders are telling you, you better be quiet or and what does Peter and John look at him and go? We've seen the worst you can do. (laughs) We're good. That's courage. That's boldness. That's a willingness to say, this is what I'm going to do. And it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what other people think. I'm going to be faithful to God. I think there's a boldness that is there that um, is still needed today. A boldness to still say, you know what? This is, this, is what um, this is what the Word of God says. And so that is what I'm going to do. So you see a purpose in John. You see a, a boldness or a courage in John. And then one last place. One last place. Revelation 1. You get to Revelation 1 all the way. The last, the last book in your Bible in the New Testament. Some of your books are going to say the Revelation of John. I already told you. Um, so he's, he's exiled, 85, 90 years old. We have no record that he knows of what, is, what has come about or what has happened to any of his other fellow disciples. Um, we don't know if he knows or if he doesn't know. But we don't, all, all we know is the information he gives us. But just think 
Use your sanctified imagination and just, just imagine. He's out there on the island. Um, probably didn't have cell, cell phone reception. Probably didn't have Wi-Fi. All right? So he was, he was cut off from the outside world. He doesn't know what's going on with the church. Um, he had been banished and exiled from the church at Ephesus. And so the church that he was pastoring, he had been kicked out of. Most likely, he's not getting information. So he's just out there. He doesn't. He has no connection theoretically. Okay? I'm not saying that's what the Bible says. I'm just, just think with me here. That, that's why he would be in exile on the island of Patmos. And so, it tells us um, down there in chapter 1, in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he says, I'm here not because I committed a crime, not because I didn't pay my taxes. I'm not here because I got a timeshare. I'm here because I wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And so they got me here because this was the only place that I would be ineffective in telling people about Jesus because no one else is here. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, does anybody else's Bible say something else right there in the translation? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So, kind of common reading. He was having church on Sunday by himself. Whether he was taking time praying, whether he was singing his own songs to himself, leading his own self in singing, whether he maybe he had some type of parchment or some type of scroll with maybe some of the Old Testament prophets on there. Maybe he was reading. It doesn't tell us the exact practice. It just, he was in the Spirit. So he was thinking on the things of God. He was thinking on the things of the kingdom of heaven. He was just sitting there having a worshipful time. And it says on the Lord's day, that is a reference to Sunday. So people say, well, why in the world do we have church on Sunday when the Old Testament, or the New, even in the New Testament, they did the Sabbath on Saturday? Why is that? Well, because what day did Jesus rise from the dead? He rose from the dead the first day of the week, and that is Sunday. So the New the New Testament church then has adopted their day of worship and their day of celebration on the day of the Lord, which is Sunday, because that's the day He rose from the dead. So it's not necessarily like um, the Seventh-day Adventists say that the, the practicing of worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast. And anybody that is worshiping on Sunday, you're the Antichrist. And, and they have gone to say, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. We're not doing it to be blasphemous. We're not doing it to shun um, the Old Testament law. We're doing it because we are celebrating that this is when our Lord and Savior rose from the dead called the Lord's Day. So what is John doing? John is exiled on the island of Patmos all by himself. Sunday rolls around. What does he do? He worships. Why do I bring that up? Because quite honestly, I don't think if I'm 85 years old, and even if I know that it's Sunday and I'm all about all by myself, I just don't I just don't think that much of myself to think that I'm still going to carry on my regular weekly devotions to God. 
I could see where my cell could be very easily tempted to just sleep in that morning. <laughs> or to maybe go and see if I can find a way off this island. Or go do something else. I could very easily see myself saying, Hey Spence, you've done enough. Your devotion is fulfilled. Yeah, but if you family, if you're at the transfiguration, from that perspective, it's understandable. It's also admirable. The fact that here he is by himself, he's on the Lord's Day, and he prioritizes a time of worship. He's prioritizing his devotions to God. And he is sitting there not because somebody's taking attendance, not because if he doesn't, the preacher's going to call him. Not because, you know, he's got to bring his kids. He, it, it's, there's a devotion to God that after 70 years is still just as rich as it was 70 years before. And a devotion that is there that I think is just a great example for you and I. Um, because quite, quite frankly, we are becoming very fickle in our Christianity. By, I'm not talking you, I'm talking about at large, we're becoming very fickle. I mean, it's getting to the point that people want to cancel church because it rains. I mean, it just, there's a, there's just a, you know, sometimes it's, it's like, we'll have church when we have nothing else better to do. Or we'll have church as long as it's sunshine and 80 degrees. Or, or we will come together and we'll worship. And, and, and we be, have become very, um, to some degree, I'm talking about the church at large, we've, we've become pansies in our devotion to God. And our devotion to the Lord. And, and I'm sitting there thinking about John. And I'm thinking, you know, John is sitting there. And uh, no one is taking attendance. And no one is going to turn him in. And nobody's going to sit there and go, you're not being a good Christian. John's like, I'm here on the island because of the Word of God. That's what he qualifies in verse 9. This is why I'm here. And yet, I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful. I'm not angry. I'm not throwing a pity party. What am I doing? I'm worshiping God when I should. I, I just think there's a tremendous example for us about. I, I just think it's a tremendous example, you know, of, of the devotion, of the devotion to God, and and what that looks like in our daily lives of having that rhythm of worship and having that rhythm of doing those things. I think there's an example for you and I of asking ourselves what is our level of devotion to God. And I'm not talking about just Sunday morning. I'm talking about Thursday morning when you wake up. When is your time alone with your Creator tomorrow? When is it? I'm not saying, I'm not saying it has to be every day. I'm just saying that it doesn't hurt. Most of us sleep pretty much every day. Most of us consume food and fluid and oxygen pretty much every day. Um, when is the time that we come and we worship God? So he gives us some examples. Any other lessons that might stick out to you? Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wilson. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwelson.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.